Uh, If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you, there's also one in the seat in front of you. You can grab that. Uh, You should be around 980, I think, when I looked last. That's the page we're at. Uh, You also have the passage on the back of your handout. Uh, While you turn there, I just wanted to give a quick thanks uh, that doesn't have to do with the message, but last uh, week we had our members meeting at night, and after the meeting we uh, we were given, both myself and Pastor Billy, the many, many cards for pastor's appreciation. Uh, my wife and I went home later and just started reading the, uh, the cards out loud to each other, many of which had gifts in them that were very encouraging. But truly, the, the encouraging element was just reading all of the things that you guys uh, wrote to us, the ways that you encouraged us in this task. And so I want to thank you for the way that you encouraged us last week with that. So as you're going, though, to Acts chapter 4, I want to talk about an event that happened 160 years ago, 140 miles from where we are seating, seating right now. It was one of the most bloody and terrible battles within American history. A battle that lasted only three days and yet over 50,000 people died in the conflict. Many of you who know and love history probably have already connected that we're talking about the Battle of Gettysburg that happened here on Pennsylvania soil. This battle, if you know history, you know that this was a deciding factor of the war. This was a life or death situation. There was no surrendering from this. There was no turning around without also guaranteeing that would be the final result of the war. But not just the battle as a whole had that significance. There were battles within the battle that also had the same weight on them. One of those battles was the battle to defend little Round top. On the second day of Gettysburg, the Union forces had been pushed back. They were trying to regroup, find defensive locations, and all the way on the end of one of the, the sides was this hill, Little Round Top. The, the, the Confederates, understanding what was happening, said, This is our opportunity. We need to press the advantage and take their side so that we can then just harry the entire force. The commander that was on top of Little Round Top named Joshua Chamberlain, a commander from the state of Maine, he was the Union officer tasked with defending Little Round Top and he understood the significance of that small hill. The reality was if the Confederates gained that position, the Battle of Gettysburg, and therefore the war itself would be lost. Everything pivoted on this moment, and both sides knew it. And so for Joshua and his men, this was the hill to die on. And so they did not surrender. Volley after volley, charge after charge, pushed back on all sides, but they did not surrender. It came to the point that in the midst of this battle, they had to turn to bayonets and sabers, a gruesome and grueling war, but they didn't surrender. A battle that was taking the lives of friends and brothers, people they had stood by throughout the entire war, perhaps people that they had known since childhood, 
and they didn't surrender. The question I think that we ask is, why? Why not turn away from their almost guaranteed death? Why not abandon one insignificant hill in the Pennsylvania countryside? Why not leave the hardships, go back to his home in Maine? Why stay and fight even if, all, even if it was all but guaranteed to experience nothing but pain and suffering? Because this was a hill to die on. This was a cause worth fighting for. This was the key focus and deciding factor of the mission. So they did not surrender. They did not run away. They stood true, they, they stood true to their calling. Within the book of Acts, we have been given a mission. We see from verse 8 of chapter 1 that Christ has told them, our Lord, our commander has said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all of Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You are my witnesses. What we've seen so far in Acts is that was not just a mission given to those apostles, to those disciples. This is our mission. Our king has called us to this. But the reality is that this mission will face great opposition. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we are going to see challenge after challenge, even challenges that lead to the point of death. Do we abandon this mission? Our big idea this morning is this. No matter the opposition, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. No matter the opposition, no matter what comes, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. My goal is that today that we would be encouraged, that we would take heart seeing the response of other fellow soldiers, other fellow followers of Christ, that we would be encouraged in that, but that we would also take the same action. But I recognize that asking someone to die on a hill, asking someone to be willing to suffer and even die for a cause, that type of request requires trust in your commander and acceptance of the mission. And so that's our goal this morning. I hope that this morning we are motivated in this account to boldly proclaim Christ for it is the key to our mission, no matter the cost. As we're going through this passage, I want you to look for places and maybe highlight or mark or take notice of all the different places in these 22 verses that either mention the name of Jesus or mention the bold proclamation of his followers. Let's begin by looking at the context and tension we see in the first paragraph. We're going to start by looking at verses 1 and 2 and see the great annoyance of the Jewish leaders. Looking at verse 1 and 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Just to quickly remember some of the context of what's happened. We've already seen that Christ has given a mission to his followers. You are to be my witnesses. 
He's also promised, though, before he even told them what the mission was, he told them the means of accomplishing that mission. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, we see the proof of that power. We see that the promise is fulfilled because here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Christ, and what happens is that they go out and they proclaim the name of Jesus. And the result is astounding. 3,000 people repent from their sins. They repent from the condemnation of being guilty of the death of Jesus and they place their faith in Jesus. And what comes out of this is a new people, a church willing to follow and submit to their king, Jesus. Chapter 3 then starts, where not just inside the church is there awe and wonder at what God is doing. We now start to see it outside of the church. Because these disciples, namely Peter and John, they go to the temple and they come upon this crippled man. And they look and they say, look, I don't have silver and gold to give you, but we have the name of Jesus. And they proclaim the name of Jesus. And we see this man healed. A fulfillment of what we saw in the end of chapter 2 where, Jesus, where, where it said that there would be signs and wonders happening through the apostles. Here's a sign and wonder. And the result of the sign and wonder is that a crowd rushes to them. They want to see what's happening because this has been a man who since birth has been a cripple. What we'll see at the end of our passage, he was 40 years old. People knew who this guy was. They rush and they say, what happened? And Peter and John don't take the credit. It's not us. It was the name of Jesus. They boldly proclaim the name above every name. Now we get to chapter 4, and there's a shift in the tone. Up till now, we've seen all of these ways in which God has overcome the different obstacles, but now there's a new type of obstacle. And it's a familiar obstacle because it's the obstacle that we saw over and over throughout the Gospels. Look look who arrives. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. If you're someone that's read through the Gospels, this should be that, that clue, like when you're watching a movie and the music shifts, the Dun, 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 dun. You're like, oh man, something is about to switch. This is the first time we're encountering these people, but they're familiar foes to us. These are the ones who viciously oppose Jesus. What is their reaction to seeing what Peter and John are doing? What does it say? They were greatly annoyed. Why? I just want us to imagine their perspective. This was a problem that they thought they'd already resolved. This isn't the first time that they've heard someone saying things that they don't want said. This isn't the first time they've seen people doing things that they're saying, no, this disrupts what we want. Who have they encountered this problem with? Jesus. Back in John uh, chapter 11, we see these, this same group of people, the council, the, the Sahedrin, having this discussion in uh, John 11 verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They thought that they had fixed this problem. Let's kill him. 
Let's get this problem out of the way. It's one guy. That's all we need to do. And now they come to the temple and there's two guys. And he's preaching, they're preaching in the temple and there's this large crowd of people listening. But what makes it worse is what these people are proclaiming. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This likely would have annoyed any of the Jews who had rejected Jesus, but this was especially annoying to this group of Sadducees. Why? Who who are these Sadducees? The Sadducees are the ruling elite. For the last several years, all the way up until uh, 66 AD, the Sadducees are the high priests. These are the people that have been given uh, control. These are people who have somewhat aligned with Rome, with Herod, in order to stay in control. They have different views from the other groups that we see opposition, Pharisees. The Pharisees have all of the oral tradition. They have all the law and rules of the elders. They have all of those things that they believe. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. The Sadducees say, no, only what is written in the law. And there is no resurrection. None of these things matter. Now who do they see? They see a people proclaiming Christ as resurrected, a king who would disrupt how things are happening with Rome. They see a people uh, proclaiming an oral, what they have received from Christ, and so not things that are written. They see people in their place. Who's meant to teach in the temple? Who's meant to be gathering the people in and saying what God said? That's their place. Can you understand why they are so greatly annoyed at Peter and John. We see moving on to verse 3 that their annoyance causes them to arrest Peter and John. Verse 3 says, They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Luke is the, is the one that gives us so many details when he's writing. He said earlier in chapter 3 that the miracle happened at the ninth hour. Uh, that would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon for us. So a few hours have already passed. Peter has already boldly proclaimed to the people. And now it's evening. And the Jews, these Jewish leaders know they want to do something about this. But it's already late. And they say, so let's just put them in jail. We'll deal with this tomorrow. I want to take advantage of this one verse here and and just to think what that must have been like for Peter and John. I think sometimes we read through all of the, knowing the end of the story, knowing where Acts is going to go and think, oh yeah, there was those times where uh, uh, different disciples were put in prison and they they were singing in in prison. So, So I think it just wasn't a big deal for people to be arrested back then. I think that the apostles just didn't care. They were, they were so holy that they just, it didn't even matter to them. This is their first time. This is their first time facing this op- kind of opposition. And just think about what they've seen and experienced. When was the last time that they remember this group getting together? What did they do the last time? The last time they got together 
at least according in, in Scripture, what we see, the last time they got together, a few months earlier, they condemned Christ and crucified him. Beyond that, what did the disciples hear from Jesus the week leading up to his death, the second part of, of the Gospel of John? What did Jesus spend time telling his disciples? Listen to what he says in John 15, 20 through 21. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. And what have Peter and John been proclaiming? The name of Jesus. Do you think while they're sitting in prison, they're remembering, wait, Jesus said, what they did to me, they're going to do to you. Verse 16, uh, John chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Do you think they're remembering right now? Maybe there's some comfort in knowing that Jesus said this was going to happen, but I'm just going to say I'm guessing that they're terrified. We know Peter had a wife, a mother-in-law. Do you think he's sitting in prison thinking what's going to happen to my wife is now if this is the hill I've been called to die on? Beyond that, Peter was told he would die for the cause the end of John chapter 21, Jesus and Peter are walking on the beach and Jesus tells Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Do you think there's a part of Peter that's wondering, is now the time? Part of the reason we can know that they were actually shaken up by this is because in the next passage, where we'll be next week, they're going to pray, pray with us that we would continue to boldly proclaim. Why did they pray for that? Because they were worried that they wouldn't. They were concerned that they would be so terrified by what they're facing that it would stop them from the mission. Again, thinking of, of those, that battle at Gettysburg, do you think there was an element where people are standing on the hill and saying, I don't want to be here. This is not a hill I want to die on because I don't want to die. For us, the readers, there's a part of us that has to be questioning what's going to happen. What are the disciples going to do? Will they continue pursuing Christ's mission though it might result in their suffering and ultimately in their death? How will they respond to the opposition? Will they surrender or will they pursue the mission? Well, before we see the answer to that question, Luke actually finishes the previous section by telling us the result of their bold proclamation to the crowds. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, we see a great addition. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. It's very interesting for, for Peter to do this, almost this, uh, this, to dovetail these two statements, to have this this odd dichotomy where on one side we have this rejoicing element. 5,000 just counting the men. That's at least 
2,000 more that have been added to the church. This is an incredible result. And why is there this result? Because they boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. At the same time, those who did the bold proclamation, they're sitting in prison. Luke is beginning to to, uh, paint out, to bring out this motif that we're going to see through the book of Acts, that God's word, even though man is hindered, his word is not. Even while the men are seated in prison, the word is still producing results. The transformational intent for this passage is to boldly proclaim Christ. That's the hill that we stand on. That's the hill where we are, need to be willing to die on. But why? Because though we suffer, others might believe. Boldly proclaim Christ. Though you suffer, that others might believe. This is our mission. It's an important mission. This is the means Christ has chosen to call others to himself. He has delegated the proclamation of his son to us. We might suffer. We might be imprisoned. People will be greatly annoyed at us. We will lose social status. We will face opposition. So why would we still do it? Why would we continue to boldly proclaim Christ if the list of trials we might face is so great? Because through our bold proclamation, we might see others saved. And seeing others saved is a hill worth dying on. Boldly proclaim Christ, though you suffer, that others might believe. No matter the opposition, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Let's move on now and see how Peter and John will respond to their opposition. We're going to see both their interrogation and proclamation. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 and see their interrogation. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Imagine the setting. Maybe, we don't know, but maybe Peter and John are are led out of the dungeon that they were in, the prison, and and their eyes are still trying to get used to the light. And they come out, and and as their eyes are adjusting, they start seeing, oh, there's Annas, the former high priest. There's his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest. There's the rest of his family. There's the scribes. There's the elders. There's 70 people, if it's the whole council, seated in front of us. Any hopes that they might have had have said, you know what? Maybe this will all, you know, maybe after they sleep on it, they're going to see, they're just going to let this go. Maybe they'll just put us out. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. All of those hopes are dashed as they look and they see the ruling authority of Jewish culture, the most powerful people of their, their people are seated in front of them. And they ask them a question. A very purposeful question. By what power or by what name did you do this? It's fascinating to me that the greatest concern for these leaders is what name did you do this through? What name? They don't ask how, oh, oh, did the miracle really happen? Did you do some trickery here? Hey, explain to us this power. No, no. What power 
what name are you claiming is responsible for this? One of the things that we learn is that where the enemy focuses its attack is a good gauge to determine where the battle is most important. Where is the enemy attacking? What name are you claiming has done this? We aren't concerned that it happened. We aren't concerned where it happened. We aren't concerned that people saw. We want to know the way and the name you claim that this work happened. This question reveals the focal point of the battle. This is the hill that they say, if you're going to stand here, we will attack. It is the determining factor that of the result of the battle. Later, that's going to be confirmed by what they tell the disciples to do. You can leave, just don't mention Jesus anymore. This is the center. So how does Peter respond to the enemy's attack? Does he recognize what they're doing? Does he back down? No, he proclaims the name above every name. Let's look for it through verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, has been, this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This is a beautiful fulfillment of what Christ said would happen when they faced opposition. Earlier, I, I, I mentioned different passages from the book of John where Jesus told them, you should expect persecution. You should expect that people will treat you the way they treated me. But Jesus also, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, gave them other words along the same lines, but with a comfort. This is what it says in Luke 21, 12 through 15. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my, notice what it says, for my name's sake. But then look what he says in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I will give you the words to say. What do we see here in our passage? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in Luke 21, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand it. What we're going to see in the next paragraph, they're going to be astounded. How are they speaking this way? Because Jesus has told them, I will lead you. What a comfort. Christ promised they would have what they needed to take advantage of the opportunity. Christ promised they would receive power from the Spirit so that they could be witnesses. And we're seeing them here speak boldly. And it's astounding to them. I, I, I don't know for you. Uh, I can do this. I can speak in front of some people, although there are times where I'm like, oh, a little nervous and stuff. But they, and some of you would look at this and say, worst nightmare of all time. 
But there are times when I have to speak to someone in authority, it's like I've never spoken in public ever before. The few times I've been pulled over, I can't remember my name. Someone comes over and like, where are you going? I don't know. Just, did I do anything wrong? (laughs) When I've gone to conferences and it's a question and answer time and I have to ask the question of someone who I very respect, I spend like 15 minutes like thinking, how do I phrase this? A lot of that's fear of man and wanting to look better than I really am. But there's this element of speaking in public that's terrifying in those settings. These guys are in front of the Supreme Court. They know what these guys think of them. They know, as revealed by their question, what they want them to either deny or just avoid. And Peter does none of that. Look what Peter says. He doesn't back down. You almost get chills seeing what Peter's doing. He doesn't surrender. He knows the danger. He knows that these words would put him in the greatest harm. But what does he say? This man was healed by Jesus. If you want to know how this happened, you want to know who healed this man, it doesn't just say it was the God of Abraham who healed him. That would be true. It was the God of our fathers, Isaac and Jacob, who healed this man. That's also true. It is the God who is the ancient of days who is now allowing this man to stand. That's also true. He could have found a common ground that would have allowed them to coexist on this this point. But he doesn't because he knows his mission. He knows the hill to die on. He says, no, this man is healed by the name of Jesus. Which Jesus? Let me remind you, the Jesus you crucified, the Jesus you killed, the Jesus whom God the Father raised from the dead. It is through this Jesus that this man is standing before you well. Notice that he doesn't just proclaim the name of Jesus. He flips the table. He, thinks, he says, you guys think I'm on trial here? I'm not on trial. You're on trial. You are guilty of the death of Jesus. That's bold proclamation. And Peter continues. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's quoting from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm, but he's also demonstrating their guilt. He says, you, the builders, this was your job. You were the priests. You were the ones who the mission was to take the truth to the people, to see this kingdom of God built. It is your job. You were the builders. But you rejected the most important part, the crucial piece of this building. You turned away from it. I put at the beginning, at the top of your your handout, the battle of the builders. Why? Because these were the ones that were meant to be the builders. But what did Christ say to Peter? On this rock, I will build my church. He is now calling the apostles. What we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that God gives different gifts to the church, including the apostles, to build, to equip the church. 
But where does it all come down to? The hill of Jesus. That's the determining factor. Why are these no longer the builders? Because you rejected the stone. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. Where is all of this conversation happening? In the temple. Peter's saying, that's not the building we're supposed to be working on. This isn't it. There's a new building. And it's built on Christ. But look what he says then. It's not just Christ who is the cornerstone. It's also Christ who is the capstone. Look at what it says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When we are talking about Christ, why is Christ the hill that we do not depart from? Why is Christ the place that we don't go through? Not only is Christ the foundation we are built on, he is also the capstone we are protected under. There is no salvation under heaven in which we can be saved. It is under Christ. Cornerstone, capstone, and just one more, keystone. Why? The way all of this holds together is Christ. We see that in Colossians. We see that in Ephesians. Not only is the church built on Christ, not only is the church protected under Christ, not, the church is held together by Christ. Cornerstone, keystone, capstone. It's all Jesus. Why won't we depart from this? Because there is no other salvation. How many of us, if we were in this situation, would do what Peter did? If you knew that what most would incite a fierce battle would, would, would be the proclamation of Jesus, why would you proclaim Jesus? Why not find some common ground? Why not say something that we all can agree on? It's the Father, uh, God the Father saved him. God the Father, the, the, the Father of Abraham. That wouldn't have gotten them in trouble. But what they were called to was to be witnesses of whom? My witnesses, Jesus' witnesses. And so they do not depart from that. Boldly proclaim Christ, for salvation is found only in his name. No matter the opposition, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Let's look now at the uh, third and final section and see the threat from the leaders and then the declaration of Peter and James. Verse 13. Uh, This is perhaps one of my favorite sections, my favorite verse in the whole book of Acts. Listen to verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. They recognized they had been with Jesus. What are the leaders seeing? There's only one explanation. There's only one thing that makes sense for this. These are people not trained in the law. These are people that are not trained to be scribes and lawyers. These are people that do not have the theological training to stand before our might and argue back with us using scripture as support. They can't do what they're doing. There's no explanation that makes sense for what we are seeing in these two men other than these men had been with Jesus. 
is the only explanation for our life that we have been with Jesus. When people look and wonder and question what's happening is the only explanation that can possibly make sense when they try to understand our life is that we have been with Jesus. When the enemy attacks us, when it launches its, the assault against us, when it threatens us with persecution and hardship, will we back down? There's only one way in which we won't back down. There's only one way in which we will not fold under the pressure. There's only one way we will not surrender the mission. It's if we are filled with in the power of the Spirit because we are people who have been with Jesus. Now, I just want to add an element of this. What, what is astounding to these leaders? In light of the context, if you had a group of people stand in front of you and on one side, these are people that just made someone who's been a cripple for 40 years walk again. And the other side is that they say it was through Jesus. What's the part that you would be more like, oh man, I have a hard time understanding that. For me, it's the miracle, but not for them. The part that surprised them was not the miracle. The part that astounded them most was that they would continue to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. What stood out to them, what stood out is the bold proclamation of Peter. And so, so here, here's just something for us. We might be tempted to think that what we need is to perform miracles we might think if we could just do signs like the apostles, like Jesus, or like Moses, everything would change. But let me just tell you this. A large portion of the miracles and signs that happen in the Bible caused people's hearts to harden, not soften. Pharaoh saw all the signs and rejected. The Pharisees saw all the signs and rejected. The Sadducees saw the signs and rejected. The power that they are astounded by in this passage is not the sign. The power they are astounded by is the bold proclamation of Jesus. Is that something we can do? That's what we're called to. We move on and see that the council decided to threaten Peter and James, looking at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, so he's there with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in what? In this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How do we determine the hill the enemy is trying to conquer? That place that they say, if we can just disrupt and conquer this place, we can disrupt the entire war. Where is all of their attack? What do they say? Do they go to them and say, all right, no more miracles. You can't do that. No. Don't say that. Do they say, hey, you can't come into the temple anymore. You're not welcome. No. Do, do they say, hey, no more speaking to the people. Actually, instead, we want you gone from Jerusalem. You cannot be in this place anymore. They don't say any of that. They just offer a reasonable request. Look, you can stay. Just don't talk about Jesus. 
One of the things that we need to understand about spiritual war is that the attacks of the enemy are often cloaked in reasonableness. And they often appear to be the easiest solution. And I just want to highlight one element. I think sometimes we go too far on one of two ways with the pendulum swinging of spiritual war. Either we think there's no spiritual war, or we go the other way and say, everything's a spiritual war. I had a bad day at work. Definitely a spiritual war. Were you proclaiming Christ and that's why it was bad? No. Do you have a habit that people know that you're a Christian and they treat you differently? No, but it was just a bad day. Definitely spiritual war. And I'm not saying that sometimes those things aren't involved. We, we see in Job all of the different circumstances of life that, that Satan used as a means of spiritual war. But why? Because he was a man that was glorifying God in everything he did. Why are these men under persecution? Because they are boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. Spiritual war is going to be as we live spiritual lives that look like our Savior. And a good way to determine if it's a spiritual war is if there is an easy solution that makes it all go away. What's the easy solution for them? Just don't say Jesus. You can do all the rest. Just don't say Jesus. What if they went to the, if the Confederates went to Joshua and said, Joshua, we're going to let all of your men go free. In fact, Joshua, we want to promote them. We're going to give you all these things. We just need this hill. You can go back to Maine a king. You can go back with everything you want. We just need this hill. This is the pattern of spiritual war. What did Satan say to Jesus? Look, all of this, just worship me. It seems so little and inconsequential, but these apostles, Peter and John, recognize the attack for what it is. They recognize, no, no, this is not a hill we can surrender. This is a hill we are willing to die for. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You determine for yourselves what's happening here. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. What do Peter and John recognize? No, we can't not proclaim Christ. Whether you think what we're doing is wrong or right, that doesn't matter to us. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Boldly proclaim Christ, for we are witnesses of what he has done. That's our job. Our mission is to proclaim what we have seen and heard. This is what Jesus is doing. Luke then adds a few more details that they're let go after being threatened more. Again, the whole point being the name of Jesus, but the people are praising Praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. God was doing incredible things. But don't think that the main sign here is the healing of this man. The main power we are seeing is the bold proclamation of those who are proclaiming the name of Jesus, no matter the cost. Verse 
They didn't know they would be let go. Boldly proclaim Christ, for we are witnesses of what he has done. No matter the opposition, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. This morning we began by considering the efforts of Joshua Chamberlain and the Battle of Little Round Top. Now ultimately, Joshua and his men did in fact hold off the attack, which determined the outcome, not just of Gettysburg, but the entire war. Later, for his daring heroism and great tenacity in holding his position on the little round top against repeated assaults and carrying the advanced position to the great round top, Chamberlain was awarded the Medal of Honor. Why? He didn't abandon. It ended up that Joshua did not end up dying on that hill, but he was willing to. On the other hand, many of his men did die on that hill. Why? Because it was a mission that they were willing to die for. They understood the significance. One of the beautiful things, though, is that we too can expect a badge of honor for accomplishing our mission. Oh, to imagine when Peter arrived in heaven after what God, Christ said would happen, where he was led where he did not want to go, where he was, as church history would tell us, crucified upside down for the cause of his Savior, to imagine him arriving in heaven and receiving that medal of honor because he did not abandon the mission. Are we willing to do the same thing? Because what would happen if we neglected our mission? What if we surrendered the battle? What if we abandoned this hill? Please understand it would not mean that Christ would not accomplish and win the war. That's the one difference. If Joshua Chamberlain had abandoned the hill, the Union would have lost the war. If we don't do what we are called to, that does not mean that Christ is going to lose. We don't have that kind of power. But it does mean that we failed. Imagine if, if Joshua brought his men to his commanding officer and they all came there and he's asking, what happened? What, 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 where, why are you here? Did, what, what happened to the hill? Did we win? And Joshua says, oh, no. There was just a lot of fighting over that hill. It was not worth it to stay. So we decided to leave that hill to them and avoid that conflict. And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna get them on another day. But I want you to see some things, uh, Commander. Did you see how nice our uniforms look? Did, did you see how polished our shoes are? Did you see our buttons, how they, they gleam and that we have them looking so nice? Did you see the way that we marched in order here and everyone was in ranks? Did you see that we did not lose a single man on our trip over here? How would the commander look at him? At worst, at best, a coward. At worst, a traitor. You abandoned the mission. So often I think that in Christian life we can get so caught up on all of the, well, our uniform looks nice. Our shoes are polished. That's great. Those things are important. Did you do the mission? Did you abandon the hill? Are you willing to stay there and die for the name of Jesus? This is a mission we cannot abandon this is a mission we must be willing to die for. Why? Because we must boldly proclaim Christ, though we suffer, that others might believe. 
We must boldly proclaim Christ for salvation is found only in his name. We must boldly proclaim Christ for we are witnesses of what he has done. We must boldly proclaim Christ for it is the key to our mission. No matter the opposition, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. But I want to finish with this. Christ is the commander who is not waiting behind enemy lines, just sending us notes and saying, I want you to go to this next place. Christ is the commander who went in front of, the, of our lines and led us to where we are meant to go. All of these things that he is asking for, he did far more. Christ does not ask us to do what he has not done first and greater. Because who died on the hill first? We might have to die on the hill. That's not guaranteed. It was guaranteed for him. It was something he knew before leaving. The safety, the security, the comfort of presence with God the Father. He chose to leave that. He chose to humble himself to the point of putting on humanity, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross so that we might be saved from our sins because of his sacrifice. He had a hill he was willing to die on and walked himself to that hill. And now he turns to us, his followers, and say, follow my pattern. Boldly proclaim what I have done so that others might believe for salvation is only found in his name because we are witnesses of what he has done and it is key to our mission. No matter the opposition, we must boldly proclaim the name of Jesus.